pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny, episode 160. Today I'm going to chat with Joel Colander from Rock Island Auction, discuss the latest in the First Amendment court case on 3D printed gun plans, highlight the new Trijicon RMRCC, and talk about the hero policewoman who applied a tourniquet to her partner after being shot twice in the face. I'm your host, Ava Flannell, and Joel, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I must confess, I'm already interested about hearing someone who applied a tourniquet while being shot twice in the face. Yeah, actually, so my editor, he had a different story, and I was like, no, 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 we got to switch this up because I read about this, and it has to be talked about because it's pretty freaking, it's pretty amazing. So That sounds incredible. Oh, yeah. Gracious. Yeah. Anyways, I'm glad that I was able to get you on this week, especially with, can we say, can we... We can. Okay, good. Good, because we're already recording. (laughs) (laughs) So you're expecting a baby this week. Is this your first or? This is uh, lucky number three. Oh, okay. So at this point, the excitement's over. It's old hat. We're super bored. (laughs) Not excited at all about uh, about the third one. (laughs) That's funny. Do you guys know if it's a boy or a girl or are you just going to wait and see? That was the only way we could add excitement, actually, was to not find out uh, if it was going to be a boy or a girl. So we'll find out probably probably by the end of this week. Oh, nice. Yes. Very exciting. Yeah. So you didn't do one of those gender reveal parties and light the entire state on fire. That's good. We neglected to do that. Yeah. The citizens of Illinois were, were pretty happy about it. <sighs> All right. Before we get into it, I'm going to talk about Manicore Arms. If you guys have the Tavor from IWI, you should go check out. All of the parts that Manicore Arms makes, I've talked about some, like the cantilever, the switchback charging handles, curved butt pads, gasketed port covers. They're on stock right now. They make excellent upgrades to your Tavor. In my opinion, they're just a much. They just help increase capability, ergonomics, functionality, all of that good stuff. Go and check it out. That's at manicorearms.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY15. That gets you 15% off. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Joel, you and I, we actually met when I was in Texas at the, was it the Safari Land Show? Is that what it's called? Uh, Dell Safari Club. Oh, okay. Okay. Similar enough. It was Safari-esque, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a little different because it wasn't your typical, I don't know, it wasn't my typical, like the events that I typically go to like, that you'd see at SHOT Show and stuff. There was a lot of companies like fur companies, and it was definitely a lot more geared around like hunting and mm-hmm. collectibles and stuff like that. And you guys had a booth and you guys had some really, really amazing, beautiful guns that I didn't even want to touch because they were so expensive that if I left like, a fingerprint on them, I'd probably have to pay at least, I don't know, 20000 But before we get into that, I want to know what made you originally start within this industry? The industry as a whole, actually, I was already involved, actually, in between jobs. This is kind of a fun story. And um, in my spare time, I was writing a beer blog to fill my time, writing pictures, social media, that sort of thing. And when that sort of job came up, um, found by my wife, no less. You know, that's kind of how the interview went. Like, well, what makes you think you could do this job? Well, I, I do it already for free. So imagine what I could do if you paid me. Huh. 
And that was the first step into the firearms. I had had, you know, obviously some more rudimentary experience just being kind of an enthusiast in military history and, you know, hunting and shooting just, you know, recreationally. But my job starting with Rock Island Auction was the first big, big step in this wonderful world. Nice. Okay. So before you started with Rock Island, you said that you were writing a beer blog. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. I I never thought I would bring up writing and drinking about beer in a job interview, but, uh, but there it was. And you said that you kind of already were doing it for free, but how does beer and guns, how do they go hand in hand? Um, surprisingly, like you have to be able to describe what you are experiencing, uh, tactically. So, uh-huh. and obviously with craft beer, that's quite, a, you know, it's what you see, it's what you taste and being able to place those things. And with guns, it's obviously more what you see, how it feels, um, and then, of course, being able to describe the history. Well, you have to be able to de- describe a beer, too. And a lot of times uh, you're, you're describing very similar things, whether that's, you know, how a gun shoulders, a trigger pull, et cetera, et cetera. How many ways are there where you can describe like a glass rod, quote unquote, of a, you know, of a really nice trigger? Well, how many ways are there you can describe the level of effervescence in a beer? Like you got to be creative and, and think about different ways to talk about the same things. And uh, so it, it kind of lent itself really, uh, really well, but just more. Um, what helped probably more was just the self-editing process and a, little, a few more boring things like that. Hmm. And where did your knowledge of firearms come from? Like I said, it started basically, and I hate to say the traditional like boy answer, like war history in school. But um, frankly, it's the first time you really hear about what those soldiers went through and what guns they were using in these battles. And you, you're really told for the first time and it, it, it kind of grabbed me learning about World War II in Vietnam. So that was probably the earliest with in the more technical side. And as far as the recreation and just use, you know, hunting with dad, whether it was squirrels and starlings from, uh, gosh, I don't know, with a Ruger 1022, I don't know how young and, uh, and deer hunting and on from there. Nice. So what is your position at Rock Island right now? It is the funnily named interactive production manager. Oh, that's a nice label. It was. It was even when I was on a team by myself, I was a I was apparently a manager. So that's a <laughs> that's that's a good one to have. <laughs> nice. Okay. So let's talk about some of the auctions. You guys specialize in rare exotic firearms. Tell us a little about the company and how it got started. Sure. Um the company has some pretty some pretty humble roots despite the the guns that we have now. Um our CEO and founder Pat Hogan, um, he got out of the Navy. And he was going to start, and he grew up in the Chicago area, Southside Chicago, um, big family. And he, after he got out uh, of the Navy, he was going to start essentially like a gas station franchise. And he bought it and ended up not being in Chicago. The franchise ended up being on the far side of the state, uh, Rock Island, where we are now. So moved across the state and started basically a chain of gas stations, like one growing into another. And then he it just, it keeps burgeoning. And that's kind of something that's we still see with the, with the company culture today, it's like always, what's the next step? What's the next step? And from there, it was oddly like gas stations, car washes, uh, movie rentals. And for movie, it turned into film development. And that's where things really started to transition into auctions in the firearms auction space. That photography turned into, they actually did a catalog for uh, Little John's auction service out on the West Coast. And after doing a few of those, they kind of decided, well, we could we could do this ourselves. And, uh, and so they did. So in 1993, they started a uh, rock Island auction company in, uh, in actually one of the, I believe it was one of the garages 
they had for for the existing businesses. Wow, that's pretty cool. And where do you guys now, where do you typically find most of your inventory? Uh, here in the United States, but it's it's anywhere coast to coast. We obviously do have quite a bit of uh, a, a growing number of international consignments as well. We've I've, The last few auctions have had uh, Malcolm King and some very high-end uh, sporting arms coming from across uh, the Atlantic. But most of the time, it's just um, right here in the continental U.S. Okay. And so I'm assuming that most of the auctions are more on consignment basis or are these guns that you guys have actually purchased? We can purchase guns. Um, we more times push uh, for consignment because every everybody stands to make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, if we buy guns, I mean, we're, we're a business like anybody else. It's just like, like a car lot or, or your local gun store. You have to buy low to sell high to, mm-hmm. to try to make some money off, off these guns, off the service you're providing. Um, and then you're at, you're at a little bit of a butting heads almost with the people you're doing business with because you're trying to buy low and they want more money and it just it's conflicting a little bit. So uh, we do like to try to have guns placed in auction because then you're on the same team. Gotcha. Uh, they want you to make more money. We want that gun to make as much money as possible so we can get you know the percentage that we're going to be taking for our service. So then everybody's on the same team and it just hopes the gun you know, absolutely shoots the moon as far when it comes to auction time. So we do try to, we, we like to have more consignments than not. Mm-hmm, yeah. So is there somebody there that knows the history of all of these firearms? Like how do you guys determine what the cost is? There's not someone, but there is a team of someones. Um, so there are employees here, of course, who have a lot of experience in the firearms industry dating back decades, not only the firearms industry, but like the collecting, I'll call it the collecting fraternity uh, specifically just to, so they have a lot of experience. They know where these guns have gone and where they've been and what collections they've seen and the values even that they may have brought. Uh, we also have a handful of specialists on hand who are reviewing guns and you know, able to do research online and with our own library and even some uh, third-party consultants that come in, you know, if we, if we need some help on say, um, I don't know, say Smith and Wesson's, you know, and there's, we might have a Smith and Wesson author come in and, and really nail down some of these guns for us. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And in your experience, what have you seen that's been the most expensive auction? And then on top of that, the most rare that you guys have come across? Well, rare is a hard one because it sounds a little crazy. Like we're not doing our job if we make anything rare sound common, mm-hmm. but there are so many pieces that come through that are literally one of a kind. Um, there was a Confederate revolver here. One, I, the, the exact manufacturer escapes me. I'm a little embarrassed because we just sold it. Uh, it's serial number one. It's wow. one of a kind. There's bullet board uh, that we just sold. Like you wouldn't think much uh, about a bullet board, but for these there's some collectors, these bullet boards are selling for anywhere from twenty to forty thousand dollars. And one we just sold was there's only three known. And one's in the Smithsonian and one's at the Springfield Museum. And we have the third one and it's available for the public. So the what's the rarest? Well, it's always the one there's only one of. Um uh, this last mm-hmm. auction was also a, a Colt Walker. It's the only known engraved version of a Colt Walker. Like so an already iconic western you know developmental firearm well here's the only version of it so go you know go find another one they like to say as far as the most expensive auction uh that we've ever had was actually just last june it was the largest firearms auction in firearms auction history it was at, uh, right there at 21 million um over the three-day sale wow and what was that oh i'm sorry that was the wholesale oh okay so what the whole yeah what, the whole what would be was, yeah and that's still a lot within three days to sell that much <sighs> 
But what would you say is the most expensive single firearm or product that you guys have sold? Sure. Um, well, the firearm was actually, it was a, so speaking of the Colt Walker, um, I believe 2018, we had sold a, a civilian Colt Walker. Um, that went for $1.8 million. Um, and it was, it's the only known, or it's one of very few, I'm sorry, uh, cased versions of a Colt Walker. So it, in its condition, was pretty phenomenal, especially for a Colt Walker. So $1.8 million for that. But that wasn't the most expensive item we've ever sold. It was actually a, like a, um, I remember if it was 14th or 15th, I'll say 15th century, like a chainmail shirt that had some uh, plating on it, the arm, you know, with uh, gold embellishment. And it had belonged to a, a 15th century uh, Egyptian sultan. Wow. To make that like as quick as possible. And that sold for $2.3 million. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It went to, um, what was crazier was seeing it on, the Instagram page for the Metropolitan Museum of Arts, their arts and or um, arm and armor division. Uh -huh. It was on their Instagram page. Now I don't I don't know if they bought it or if whoever did buy it like loaned it to them or maybe even donated it to them. Um, but it was it definitely went to the almost immediately within within the year to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and within the last six months, I saw it go to it's now on loan um, to the Louvre in Abu Dhabi. Like, but it was here. It was in like little old Midwest Rock Island, Illinois, like right on the Mississippi River. I always thought that was, that's cool just to see where that thing has, uh, has ended up. Uh -huh, definitely. Well, that was going to be my next question is like, who are these people that are buying these items? So we'll just assume, all right, maybe a museum or somebody who mm -hmm. donated that to the museum. But typically, who else are your guys' customers? Uh, I would say by and large, it's, it's private collectors. Um, as far as I know, museums, I mean, outside the, the very, very large, the very, very prominent museums, um, don't have the budget for some of these, uh, well, frankly, for firearms that are deserving of being mm -hmm. in a museum. Some do, um, a lot don't. And so I don't think museums are often on the top of the list. It's, uh, it's a lot more individual collectors. Sure, you get some dealers um, in there as well who, you know, if they can find something that they think is underpriced, we'll probably try to turn it around. But um, but yeah, mostly mostly private collectors, uh, people who've been who spent a, a very long time establishing collections in one particular genre or another. Wow! All right, I'm going to take a quick break. Talk about SB Tactical. SB makes braces for specialty guns as well. The SBTI was made for the BNT APC or the HKUMP. And the SBTI has an integral side folding mechanism and it's only $99. But if you use the code GUNFUNNY15, you will get 15% off. And that is at sb-tactical.com. Do you guys typically search for these rare items or do people just know to come to you because you are the place to go to auction off a rare firearm? Yes. Uh, yes to both. We have a, there's actually a team in house that, uh, that calls uh, just about anywhere and everywhere and just kind of stays in touch. It's a very, you know, slow game. No one's generally uh, fond of getting rid of firearms. So it's, you know, it, might, it can take years for uh, for a collection that we know that someone may have mentioned once they were thinking about selling and we follow up with from time to time. It's uh, just, it's pretty relaxed, but at the same time, they're very good at what they do and they're in touch with a lot of people. Um, on the other end that you mentioned, so we are actively pursuing, but at the same time, we have been 
gosh, they've been the number one firearms auction house since uh, 2003. So we're definitely the name when it comes to uh, collector firearms. And a lot of times, uh, if it's not us calling and searching, it's um, you know someone's estate is uh, is trying to get in contact with us or a or a or a widow more mm-hmm. more often than not. Yeah, and I'm sure that that's probably happening pretty regularly now with widows because. I know even with World War II stuff, their spouse passes away and they have these footlockers and then they're going through stuff. And then that's when they find, you know, memorabilia. And typically, I mean, I hate to say it, but the widow typically doesn't know even the worth. And they'll contact a local museum and be like, here you go. Yeah, I'll sell it to you for 20 bucks and it's worth 20000 And I've been hearing more and more about that lately just because a lot of the baby boomers are now passing away. So that is, that is correct. Uh, which is kind of why a lot of times when people call us, it can be a breath of fresh air because again, we're on, we're on the same team. We, we want your item to make money. And on some of this stuff, how are you going to know, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a, a regular, maybe a piecemeal Luger that's worth 800 bucks versus if something has that little mark on it that says Krieg off and you're talking like a minimum $5,000 Luger, you yeah. know, and it's, and it's just, it can be a world of difference from, from once you, especially once you dive into the minutia of some of these collecting genres. So yeah, we, uh, we love helping out like that. How do these auctions work typically? Well, we'll, uh, obviously we start by getting the the guns in the building. Is that sort of the process you're looking for? Or? Yeah. Well, I guess, and I have a follow-up question. I want to know sure. how COVID has affected this, but, um, typically I'm assuming that most auctions were done in person as opposed to mm-hmm. online or, oh. or did you guys just kind of do a variety of both? We did both. So obviously, you know, like what that first quarter this year, everyone was buttoned up pretty tight. Uh, We buttoned up as well. Um, That June auction I talked about that was like the world record setter, that was pushed off. That was our April and originally May, uh, April, May spring auction. Um, And as far as I know, we have not typically pushed auctions around very much, but we did. Um, We did that and they added a ton of online sales, like one probably almost every two weeks. Um, Just, uh, I mean, people needed something to do. We had a lot of guns that still needed to be sold. It was kind of a match made heaven as far as that goes. Um, And then, you know, things are tapering down a little bit. Everybody's a little less excited. And we were able to host the June auction, um, but not without some pretty significant changes. So obviously we have live bidders. Uh, We have people who are bidding live via telephone. And then, of course, people who are submitting their bids uh, in advance. So the auction hall, we made sure, you know, all, all the seating is, you know, two to a seat and the, and the tables are six feet apart. Uh, they put plexiglass partitions between every phone bidder, which I was like, I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the effort. It does remind me a little bit of the smoking section in a Perkins. Right. And like, how? <laughs> nope, smoke stops right here. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're uh, doing things like that, but they're also, um, we set up, a building across the street that we had purchased last year to house some of the tanks we were actually auctioning um, and made a remote bidding lounge. So now there's bidding across the street, essentially, with, um, with a representative. There was more seating for, uh, for food and drink, for employees to sit and eat as well. Like It just really helped space everything out um, and you know, give people enough room to not be all packed in the same building and have a good, safe auction experience. Mm-hmm. You said do you also auction off tanks? We have, yes. That's crazy. In fact, right now, um, last two auctions, our bar at that remote bidding lounge, um, the bar has been built around an M4 Sherman tank. Wow. And that's fun. But yeah, last year we had the, um, we offered a patent tank, 
Uh, there's an M48. There was actually a MiG-21 jet as well. Like there was, there's been some fun stuff recently. Mm-hmm. Is it just high-end stuff that you guys auction or do you also auction off just the regular guns as well or regular items? Um, it is everything. Like I said, from the $1.8 million Colts to, you know, $500 Glocks and everything in between. Um, and thankfully they're kind of divvied up by auction. So the premier auctions, those are the world-class collectibles. I think the the lowest quote lot value they they want to have on something like that would be a thousand bucks and some things go under and some things go over and it's, you know, but, but things basically start around there. Um, we also have, those take three days sales, uh, but we have our sporting and collector auctions. Um, those are great for uh, beginning collectors and people who still want to buy usable guns. If you need a hunting shotgun, a deer rifle, uh, you like ARs, you like what have you. It can be some uh, very high end. Uh, and again, like I said, some just good old everyday EDC type guns. It's uh, it's everything in between. And then <laughs> as if those two weren't enough, oh, by the, and the sporting collector auctions, they'll have like 10,000 guns is what we try to have. And we try to sell them in four days. Wow. So there's definitely something for everybody in one of those sales. Like I said, whether it's the everyday guns or we say beginning collectibles, um, you know, a Henry rifle in our premier auction might, uh, start at $20,000. Um, a Henry rifle in our sporting collector might be under that. It's not going to be quite as pristine. It's not going to be the condition, but I mean, if you want a Henry rifle and that's your budget, I mean, my goodness, you, that's where to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's our online auctions. We try to do one of those every month. It's about 1200 lots and it is everything from 50 to $5,000. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of fun and randomness in those. Have you guys seen the large uptick with just a lot of the basic firearms being sold in the last couple of months? I would say yes, just based on uh, June's auction. Mm-hmm. Uh, June, of course, the, the world record, we, it's hard to argue with numbers like that. And we've seen those kind of mirrored in the rest of the industry with these record gun sales. Um, but then our September auction, when we just had last weekend, um, we did not offer as many guns as we typically do. And is that of, just because inventory was low? Yeah, we're not sure uh, if that just... I unfortunately don't face that side of our business that much to know like the reason why they weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, all I see is like, you know, I have less guns to try to put on our Instagram account or Facebook and share with everybody or make videos about. So um, as from like a thousand a day to like 700 mm-hmm. each day of auction. So there were significantly less. That said, um, the auction still did really, really well, despite having that many fewer guns um, over the weekend, it still brought 18 million. Wow. That's what our like a full auction used to do, say two years ago, and this was uh, say seventy percent, eighty percent capacity of those other auctions, and it still got the same amount. So people are definitely buying guns and hungry for firearms. It's, um, that particular auction didn't have the didn't have the numbers in it, mm-hmm. but the quantity, I should say. Yeah, the people that are buying these twenty thousand to fifty thousand, because I saw quite a bit within the fifty thousand range when mm-hmm. I saw you at the show. Do you think that people are buying these guns to shoot or are they buying it for collector items where they're probably just going to put it in a case and never shoot? Sure. I think it depends on the gun. Um, if they're buying a $20,000 Kriegoff shotgun, that thing's probably going to get shot. That is a gun still very much in its useful life. Um, if they're buying a, I don't know, spending four figures on a, well, you know, like a Noveski AR, like that thing's going to get shot. It's mm-hmm. just a really high end for what it is. It's That thing's going to get shot. If you buy a $20,000 Smith & Wesson Volcanic lever-action pistol, uh, that thing's never getting shot. Yeah. 
it's, I mean, not only for the lack of ammunition and the ability to fire it safely, but um, potentially the the damage that could happen to a $20,000 object from the pressures of, uh, you know, exploding black powder in it, uh, let alone the corrosion properties that could happen afterwards, uh, you know, not a lot of people shoot them. That said, I think I've met way too many people who say I'd never buy a gun that I couldn't shoot to think that some of these guns aren't still being shot at mm-hmm. least once. Oh, at yeah. Least once before they put it away. Definitely. I mean, you kind of have to. For I know. Some that's these. what I think. I, I don't think I couldn't help it. As long as it was safe to operate, I'd be like, all right, we're going to fire off one round. You know, yeah. how could you live your best life otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> like we had the the Elmer Keith is kind of a, um, a mixture. So we had a, a Smith & Wesson 3844 that Elmer Keith had used by serial number to help develop the 357 Magnum cartridge. Um, that gun, while totally expensive just because of its history and its provenance, I'd say probably had rougher treatment at the hands of Elmer Keith than it would from any other collector ever. Um, so that would be one I think would be okay to shoot too. It's just, you know, where's that gun in its life? How fragile is it? Is it really worth it? Uh, if, if you should damage it, it's teach their own. I mean, it's your money. It's, uh, it's, and it's your collection, what you put in it. So mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Any future plans that you can share with listeners? Yes. December auction. Uh, we have online auctions basically every month. Like I mentioned, our December auction is going to be absolutely massive um there are firearms from the larry vickers collection that are going to be in there oh nice um there are some treats some people have already noticed on the photo preview we've put out yesterday that there will be a walther um wa 2000 in the sale so i got to geek out a little bit when that came through the door and there's believe it or not we should have a project with kentucky ballistics youtube channel before the year's over we've been trying so hard with COVID, and COVID's just been pushing it off but uh by the end of the year that's funny. And I'm fairly good friends with that guy. Oh, cool. But the first time we met, I think I was a little drunk, actually. I probably even shouldn't even say this, but we were we were at the Big Daddy Unlimited shoot, and they basically rent an entire hotel just for quote-unquote influencers. And then right. the other hotels, people that are in the businesses, manufacturers, stuff like that. Sure. And what do you do when you get together with all your friends? And I was recording a video, and I was like, this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. And then I pointed over Kentucky Ballistics and I was like, I don't know who that guy is. And so basically, (laughs) basically the entire trip, I wasn't really on the best terms with him, but now we're besties. So, you know, (laughs) the honesty is the best policy. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Can you just remind people where they can find Rock Island Auction online? Absolutely. We're at rockislandauction.com. Uh, and probably any social media channel they choose to be on, uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit. I'm everywhere. Awesome. Cool, guys. So go ahead and give them a follow. Moving forward, IWI. All right, moving forward, IWI. So guys, check out their Zion AR-15 pistol. It's a lightweight gun. It weighs about 6.5 pounds, comes with a ton of features. It has a 12.5-4150 chrome molly barrel, 11.5 free-floated M-Lock forend, the popular SB Tactical SBA3 brace, the B5 pistol grip, and a 30-round P-Mag. And they're also made here in the U.S., in Middletown, Pennsylvania. So that's kind of nice because if you need to contact customer service or something, they're pretty freaking local. And don't forget when you guys are on their website at iwi.us, if you find any accessories that you like, use the code GUNFINNY15 and that gets you 15% off. Politics. 
what is going on in the world today. It's political AF. Fifth Circuit Court reversed ruling in First Amendment case for defense distributed. On August 19, 2020, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit reversed the previous decision and found that the Attorney General of New Jersey is under Texas justification for the case of defense distributed versus gray wall. This allows a lawsuit to proceed, which is filed against the New Jersey Attorney General for violation of defense distributed's First Amendment rights to publish computer code for 3D printed guns. So the Attorney General will most likely ask for an en blanc hearing on the Fifth Circuit or appeal the ruling of the three-judge panel to the Supreme Court. And since all three judges agreed, a request for an en blanc hearing will probably be denied and the case will probably then appeal in Supreme Court. This will easily add probably years delay. And let's face it, this will be after election. So who knows what the outcome could be depending on who's going to be the next judge appointed to the Supreme Court. Previously, the protection of computer code as a freedom of speech issue was set in the Ninth Circuit Court in 1995 on encrypted databases. However, the Supreme Court has not directly ruled on the issue, so this case has big implications both for 3D printed firearms as well as other computer codes. And the government can't selectively decide which code is free speech, so it'll be interesting to see how this pans out, but I don't know. What do you think about this? I think uh, 3D printed firearms are just getting uh, more and more of uh, an issue all the time, especially as we see politicians aggressively coming after traditional firearms. Uh, As these materials and as 3D printing becomes more and more sophisticated, this is this is not an issue that's that's going away anytime soon. Um, I'm sure you've seen too from on on more than one channel some of these uh, new 3D printed uh, receivers and some of these firearm parts that are. They're being shown and functioning time and time again. Like they're not mm-hmm. just single use firearms anymore. These are these are ARs. These are real deal. Yeah. And not to mention 3D printers now are just getting pretty affordable. Every time I turn around, I'm like, oh, I could buy a 3D printer for that much. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I do think it's free speech and they should be able to post whatever they want. But I don't know. It's just again, it just kind of annoys me that they pick and choose what they consider as free speech. Okay. Yeah, I wonder how that works. Like if it's just what cases get brought to them, like yeah. who has the, the money to make a lawsuit gets to determine if their free speech gets defended or not. That mm-hmm. just seems like a terrible way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Agree. Moving forward, Smith & Wesson. If you guys haven't already done so, you should check out the MMP 2.0 pistols. It's the revised MMP striker fire gun, has an extended stainless steel chassis and a low bore access to reduce muzzle flip. Additionally, it has a crisp trigger, lighter pull, improved reset. It's available in 9, 40, 45, and includes a aggressively textured grip with four interchangeable palm swells. Do you typically change out your palm swells? I did immediately on my VP9. Um, I have kind of some bigger old meat hooks, and um, well, I love the way that thing felt in the store like the minute I got it. So I switched out the big palm swells right away, and I have not regretted it. I guess that's one of the things that with a lot of these guns, they always come out with the interchangeable ones, but I typically just keep the one that's on there, which I think they typically use the medium size, mm-hmm. but this one has four. So then you can definitely, with all of those options, make sure that the gun absolutely fits your hands very well, depending on the size. It also includes three magazines and there's multiple models, including optic ready, subcompact, long slide, and much more. 
You can check it out at smith-wesson.com. Q&A. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. All right, today's question. I recently had someone ask me about short shotguns with pistol grips for home defense, and then they wouldn't listen to the reasons why I advised against them. What are your thoughts on using them for home defense? I'm not really a big fan of using shotguns for home defense really at all. If it's a full-size shotgun, it's pretty difficult to maneuver around. And you're also limited to not that many rounds. And everyone's always like, yeah, if you use birdshot, you're not going to miss. But birdshot's not really that effective. If you use buckshot or slug, it'll obviously go through walls. And if you're using the shotgun pistol, especially with the grip, I don't know if you've ever shot a shotgun pistol, but unless you change it out and you put an SB tactical brace or something on it, it's not the easiest to operate. And it definitely has quite a bit of recoil. So I just, yeah, I would stick with something else. What are your thoughts? Well, birdshot at contact distance obviously rips rips a hole through a lot, but um how often are we at, at contact distance? It's more likely it's going to be across a room or down a hallway. And that birdshot has, you'll see from photos everywhere or ballistic gel test, it, it peppers whoever's mm-hmm. not supposed to be there, but there's no penetration. There's no lethal factor. Like, should they want to, that fight is going to continue. Um, slugs, obviously a little different. Buckshot, obviously a little different, but you're also limited in capacity with a shotgun as compared to like a 17 round polymer anything pistol that's on the market today Mm -hmm. um i mean they give you a little bit more room for error as far as aiming but i frankly i just take the capacity over that yeah definitely and it's just so much easier i think to operate even a handgun versus especially for home defense Mm -hmm. i just think a handgun is probably a little bit more ideal that would be the biggest thing is if you're using a shotgun pistol especially with the grips it's just not going to be easy to operate so that would be the biggest thing but gotta say i agree with you All right, Sharps bros. Check out the Ultra M-Lock Forend. You could either match it with the Sharps Lower or any other lower. I know right now everyone's building guns and parts can be kind of difficult to find. It comes in 7 inches, 10 inches, 13.5, and 15 inches. It's got M-Lock attachment points all around, so lots of accessory mounting positions. They range in price from $129 to $145.95. You can check them out at sharpsbros.com. Tactic Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. So Trigicon released the RMR CC for concealed carry, which... Red dots are definitely becoming pretty popular, especially on concealed carry guns. I know I have a few friends, law enforcement, ATF, and they just actually, they started carrying the Smith & Wesson and it has a red dot on it. So it's definitely, in my opinion, it's pretty ideal. It does take up a little bit more real estate and it's not as easy to conceal, but it's super easy to hit your target and as opposed to line up those sights. So with that said, with the rise of popularity of red dots, slimmer pistols for concealed carry, Trigicon has finally released a red dot to compete in the micro red dot arena. Featuring the same rugged design the RMR is famous for, the new RMR CC is two-tenths of an inch narrower and one-tenth of an inch shorter than the standard RMR. It's also waterproof and without a doubt the toughest of the new micro dots on the market. 
There's a few drawbacks, though. Basically, when it's compared to the Shield RMS, the Holosyn 507K, or the Sig Romeo Zero, first, it does not share the micro red dot mounting footprint common on guns like the P365, the Hellcat, and other new slim concealed carry guns. It's not even the same as the normal RMR, which means an adapter plate. So that's going to cost probably an additional $100. Second, the base of the RMR CC is thicker than other micros. And when you add an adapter plate, it's even thicker. So this definitely means that you will need to purchase higher iron sights if you want co-witness. Also, it does not include a small notch in the back of the sight to serve as backup irons on guns like the P365XL, like the other micros have done to prevent the need to purchase taller irons. This means co-witnessing will not be possible on the P365XL. Third, one of the big gripes on the RMR is the need to remove the sight to replace the battery, and this has not changed with the new RMR CC. Then there's the MSRP of $700, plus you add probably about $100 for the adapter plate, so it's a pretty big expense. Compared to a lot of the other red dots on the market that have definitely come down in price, it's actually pretty crazy how affordable red dots are now. Before it was like, they always say spend more on your optic than on your gun stuff. But I mean, you can get some pretty decent red dots for just a few hundred bucks and they work pretty well. But have you had a chance to check out the new RMR CC? I have not, but all the talk is, um, Trigicon, no gun puns intended, but they kind of shot themselves in the foot with this. And I hate to say that because there's so many things they have knocked out of the park and there's so many things they like sponsor and do well in the firearms community, like Dallas Safari Club, which they sponsor. Mm -hmm. But the compatibility, I wonder how much that's going to be an issue. I mean, don't we all do the same thing every time our cell phones use a cable that yeah that we don't already have? And then, you know, we piss and moan about it for a couple months and then we all just start buying the new cables anyway. So yeah. when it if it was somebody smaller that was doing this, I'd be like, well, hey, that's that was kind of, you, you rang your own death now. But when somebody like Trigicon does it, I wonder if uh, more and more places are going to uh, pick up on it. It's kind of like, you know, not every, not every, we can't be mad at every new polymer pistol because it doesn't take Glock mags. Like people are going to have to make other stuff. I wonder if this is uh, right down that line. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's actually going to add the cost to other guns that typically include all the different plates to, to take up the most common red dots. Mm. I know the IWI Masada pistol it came with, I think it was four different plates, depending on the red dot that you were using, the most common that you would typically see. So I wonder if that's also going to affect the overall cost on some of these guns that include options like that. But yeah, yeah. And how long will it take some of these other manufacturers to, to pick up on it? I, I don't know if, which one will come first. Does Trigicon's popularity have to be uh, come first or is it, will Trigicon's popularity come later as more and more manufacturers adapt to that, to that plate? Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. All right, Polymer 80. So if you're wanting to build an 80% in 10 millimeter or 45 ACP, you should check out the PF45 kits. It's the G20 or G21 frame kit. Works with all Gen 3 parts and slides. And as always, it has that 1911 style grip angle, which a lot of people prefer over the Glock grip angles. Completing the PF45 is just like any other P80 frame, and it comes with the jig and cutting bits. Check them out. They go for just $170 for the frame kit, and that is at Palmer80.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY, and that gets you 15% off. Stupid, funny, cool, interesting, awesome, as... Never mind. AF. 
Joel, I'm sure that you heard about the two police officers that were sitting in their car and some guy who hasn't been identified just walks up and shoots them both. And this happened in California. Have you heard about saw, that? Yeah, and saw one of saw one of the security cam footages earlier today in a in a feed as well. It's just it's an ambush. It comes right out of nowhere. There's no way to yeah to defend against that. Yeah. So this happened in Compton. They said that it was a dark-skinned male walked up in the car. That's all they could really identify. Both deputies were hit multiple times. This really annoys me just because it's not even... With the, with the whole people against cops and stuff and everything going on in today's world, I think at this point, these cops were literally just sitting in a car doing their job. Just basically, they were on patrol. And for somebody to just categorize a certain industry or whatever and just say that they're all bad. It's ridiculous. Anyways, the female, so there's two people. There was a female deputy, she was 31, and then there was the male, and I believe he was 24. I believe they'd both just graduated probably within the last year and a half is what I believe I read. Yeah, so they, they haven't been police officers that long. The female deputy was hit twice in the face and still had the strength and courage to drag her partner from the vehicle, call for help, and apply a tourniquet to her partner's arm. The female deputy, she just returned back to the job from maternity leave. Apart from completely unprovoked attack, which seems likely to be motivated by the current anti-police climate that has been developing, the response from some in the community was truly reprehensible. Video shows witnesses celebrating the shooting of the deputies at the scene while the female deputy was aiding her partner. Then some activists arrived at the hospital blocking the emergency entrances and some tried to get inside of the hospital and they were chanting that I hope they die. Um, Yeah, I just, I don't know. When I read this, it literally, it just made me sick that people could, I honestly, I don't really even have any words for this kind of hatred. Not to mention, these two adults are pretty young, 24 years old, and that's extremely young, 31. I totally commend her for the fact that she got hit multiple times, was still able to call for help and put a tourniquet on her partner, which is pretty freaking impressive. And then there's just these people that have no idea who the police officers are. They just categorize them as being bad people because they're police officers. And then to go as far as go to the hospital, try to get into the emergency room and chant that I hope they die is pretty awful. It's really hard to think that this is America and this is what we've become. Joel, what do you think? I think it is. It's I, I hate to, to generalize it as, as what we've become because I think people like this, you, you'd like to think are at the fringe of any particular movement, that these people would be called out regardless of what side you're on simply because... Even if you were, you know, the biggest part of this anti-police sentiment, events like this do not help your cause. Mm-hmm. Um, attacks on police, they, they generate sympathy for the police when police are being ambushed and murdered in their car for, for sitting there and doing their job. Um, all other grievances aside, so this, it should be roundly condemned. That said, um, this is also the media. Uh, it's going to take the absolute worst things that have happened and they're going to present it to you on a plate to paint one side or another one way. And obviously that stuff like that doesn't happen every day. And thank God it doesn't. Um, I just, yeah, when it's, it's basically, a I want to speculate too much, but, but the news takes the worst thing that happens every, every single day. And I think this is the worst thing. So I want to, uh, 
postulate too much that this is that this is widespread. Obviously, there is anti-police sentiment right now, and it is it is a very growing and popular movement. Um, but things like this and the evil that you saw, like in front of the hospital, you just I don't know. Maybe I'm naive. You, you just hope it can't be uh, uh, more widespread as as mm-hmm. bad as that was. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Yeah, definitely frustrating. I hope that both police officers they make a full recovery. Especially to hear that the woman just came back from maternity leave. That's always sad too, and their parents. Anyways, moving forward, Triarch Systems, aside from their Tri 11s and all their other custom Glock stuff that they do, they also customize the P365. There's a few P365 XLs in stock right now if you go to their website, and that is at triarchsystems.com. Don't forget to use the code AVA, A V A, and you'll get 5% off. And now iTunes reviews. First iTunes review is frustrated over and over. Best soothing voice gun show ever. Thanks. I hate my voice. (laughs) Five stars. Thanks, Ava, for bringing us the inside information and best guests of the firearm world. This is mostly for you, but a little for Jon Snow because he must be my long lost unmasked brother from another mother. Keep up the great work. Jesse James Outdoors on IG. Second is Poetry on a Cracker. Shows good AF. Five stars. I tried to turn it off, but it's such a good show. I have to listen. Maybe I won't get fired from this job for not working while I'm listening. (laughs) All right. So, Joel, I want you to pick a lucky winner out of those two reviews. So would you say the first or the second? Let's go with the first. Maybe it'll bring some confidence, some confidence about that soothing voice. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) All right. Now it's time to wrap up. So, guys, you can find me at gunfunny.com. If you want to support the show, you enjoy it, and you want to contribute, you should consider becoming a Patreon. You could do that at patreon.com forward slash gunfunny, and you'll get access to our Patreon-only Facebook group, which continues to grow. Also, Blown Deadline, he gives away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky patron each month. Actually, a patron that just joined last month was the winner of this month's giveaway. I also want to thank $25 Patreons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, Ryan Morrison, Elliot and Mike Pappas, Joe Lyons, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Joshua Hamp, Sportsman's Guide, Daniel Treadwell, Star Wars 77, and Ralph Anthony. King of the Patreon is still Jon Snow. He wants me to say the author, Tom Clancy, has to pay royalties to Operator Tickles because The Sum of All Fears is the name of Operator Tickle's autobiography. And Joel, thank you once again for joining me today. Can you just remind listeners once again where they can find Rock Island Auction online? Sure, of course, all our social media uh, channels and www.rockislandauction.com. All right, cool. On that note, we are out of here. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.